I also uh, have dabbled in nihilism myself. Uh, <laughs> not not to not to numb, of course. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Inslicht. And Mickey, we have not one, but two very special guests tonight. Isn't that right? We do. So it's an extra special uh, episode, one that we've been planning for for a little while now. Um, so we're not going to have any chit-chat whatsoever. We're going to get right into it. So our guest today, uh, returning guest, uh, Rob Willer. And a new guest, although someone uh, we've wanted to have on forever and, and a close friend of ours, uh, Samin Vizier. So I'll keep the intro short. Uh, so Rob has been on uh, once before. Well, twice before. Twice before. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but only ones that uh, our, our, our listeners have actually heard. Um, so uh, Rob is a professor of sociology, <laughs> uh, psychology by courtesy, and organizational behavior, um, all at uh, Stanford University. Um, he is the director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab and a co-director of uh, the Center uh, on Philanthropy and Civil Society at Stanford University. Um, Rob uh, researches a number of things, uh, but he focuses closely on uh, the social and psychological forces shaping Americans' political attitudes. Um, uh, critically for the, the purpose of today's episode, Rob was a co-author of a now highly influential paper published just a few months ago um, in Nature Human Behavior titled Using Social and Behavioral Science to Support the COVID-19 Response, which in only a couple of months has been cited over 300 times. I saw somewhere online that it's been accessed something like 130,000 times. Wow. So incredibly <clears throat> influential for such a short period of time. Um, so so welcome on the show, Rob. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. I'm totally terrified to be uh, uh, pitted against Samine in a, in a debating context. But my hair is um, pretty scary right now. It's like four inches tall. It looks good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not the thing that's intimidating me. <laughs> um, so uh, our, our next guest is Samine Vizier. Uh, Samine is a professor of psychology. Uh, at uh, the University of Melbourne. She's the co-founder of the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science and a senior editor at Collabora Psychology. Uh, her research examines accuracy and bias in people's perceptions of their own behavior and personality. But I think it's safe to say that uh, she, at least right now, is probably best known for her work in meta-science, where, uh, and I hope you don't take this wrongly, uh, Samin, I think I would characterize her as uh, an activist uh, for the open science movement, certainly an advocate, but maybe bordering on activism. Um, uh, her, her work in that space uh, takes the form of must-read blogs. Uh, this one blog that I love, Sometimes I'm Wrong. Uh, her numerous columns in places like Slate and Wired. And, of course, her co-hosting duties on one of our favorite podcasts, The Black Goat. Now, Samin is here uh, for this particular episode because she's a co-author of a second paper yet to be published that specifically pushes back against uh, the paper that Rob is on. Uh, it's titled Social and Behavioral Science Evidence Ready for Application and Dissemination? Question mark. And I should just say the, the, the co-authors here, uh, the lead authors are Hans Eiserman and, and Andrew uh, Prabilski uh, are the lead authors. So uh, welcome to the show, Samin. Thanks. 
I'm not terrified, but only because I know I'm going to lose. So uh. I'm reconciled <laughs> with that fate. <laughs> So maybe we introduce the, the, the concept for today. So today we're going to have a debate. Uh, we've never had anything like this uh, on the podcast, so we have no idea how it's going to go. Um, but I did do a little bit of homework about how formal debates go, and we're, we're kind of taking bits and pieces of, uh, of what such a, a debate might look like. Um, but the format uh, is we have a resolution. It's a resolution that we discussed at length uh, beforehand, and uh, both Rob and Samin agreed to it. And the resolution is, let it be resolved that social science in its current state can usefully contribute to the COVID-19 response. And Rob will take the affirmative position, so agreeing with that resolution, and Samin will take the negative position, so disagreeing with that position. Um, Rob will uh, make his case first, uh, make his case first, um, after which Samin will have an opportunity to uh, what's called uh, cross-examine, basically ask Rob some questions. Uh, then Samin will make her case, uh, after which Rob will uh, cross-examine her. Um, after that, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go a little bit less formal. Yola and I will ask each of you some questions. And then after that, uh, we, uh, we crowdsource some questions on Twitter. Not tons, but we got a few. And we'll ask you uh, those as well. So are the rules of the game uh, clear to both of you? Yes. Can we say the caveat about how we're not speaking for our co-authors and mm -hmm. not... I, like, I guess I think of this debate as not specifically about the content of our papers, but more our individual views on this resolution, at least for me. Yeah, yeah, I would say the same. Uh, I would feel uncomfortable feeling like I was speaking for 40 some co-authors. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right, so you're speaking on uh, just uh, for yourself only, not for the papers. And also, you know, despite it kind of uh, being a debate and, and, and combative, uh, we're all friends here and we hope this, it'll be friendly and polite and, and I hope lots of fun for both of you. Certainly it'd be fun for us, uh, Yoel and I just drinking in the background and hopefully for our listeners as well. Um, so before we begin, uh, Yoel, let's just do a real quick uh, discussion of what we're drinking. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, I'm drinking bourbon, Knob Creek. No ice. All right, wow. excellent. I am uh, veering from uh, from beer today, and I'm drinking a, a mead, uh, something called Feels Like Friday, which is a session mead, a hopped buckwheat uh, mead. I've had mead once before on our show. Uh, it was another show that was aborted, actually, um, but not one with Rob, a different one. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know about all these aborted shows. Let's talk about that instead. <laughs> Uh, so now, Rob and Samin, I'm not sure. Uh, drinking, of course, is optional for all our guests, but especially for 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 our combatants. So, are you guys going to be drinking anything other than water? I'm I'm going to be going with water. I need all the acuity that I can muster to to maintain this debate with Samin. Uh, it's 9:30 a.m. here, so I'll just be having a pale ale, the uh, Grifter. This <laughs> <laughs> being Australian. <laughs> It's a brewery nearby Merrickville, just outside of Sydney, called The Grifter, and I'm having their pale ale. I'm guessing I'll take like three sips of it. We'll see. Maybe if Rob destroys me, it'll be all gone by the end of the episode. I, I just want to make sure I, this is a, an exercise in self-handicapping, Samin. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to lower expectations as much as possible. That's my strategy in life. All right, excellent. Uh, so, Yoel, uh, anything, anything to kind of say before we kind of start our festivities? No, just thanks for joining us, and I'm excited to do this. 
All right, Rob. Uh, you know, I think we, uh, you know, in, in, uh, on the email discussion, we kind of mentioned a time limit. I think we're, we'll just go with the flow and I'll, I'll kind of note if you're going mm-hmm. a bit too over time, but, you know, take, essentially take as long as you like. Okay, groovy. Um, I should say, first off, like, I, it's totally fun to be talking with Samin about this stuff because I'm like a huge fan of Samin's and we're friends and this is not going to, I don't, I don't think of myself as a combatant here. Uh, I also think a funny thing is as I read closely this, this paper that Samin's a co-author on, there's so many points of agreement between that paper and, and my own views. Um, and, and also I think some of the views that we, that we laid out in our paper that I think we're going to find uh, healthy common ground, but you know, to, to do the proper debating thing, I'll, I'll prosecute the resolution here. I'll make, I'll make this central point. And, you know, I really think that at least in the short term until there's a vaccine, that COVID-19 is a social and behavioral problem. And uh, slowing the spread of COVID requires mobilizing just a massive behavioral change, unlike, I think, anything we've seen since the world wars. Um and doing this will present, it's already presenting just millions of mini problems, you know, just like tons and tons of little mini problems from your everyday life to your schools, to the institutions you're embedded in, to the government, public health officials, uh, you know, motivating mask wearing, developing procedures for opening and closing schools, tracking and addressing mental health problems, sustaining economic well-being. And every one of these problems, at least the ones I've mentioned, have social and behavioral aspects and thus I think could benefit from the the expertise and knowledge and findings that social scientists develop and and disseminate. Uh, You know, social sciences can contribute to pandemic response in in a few different categorical ways or some of the categories that come to mind are like measurement. You know, like we spend a lot of time thinking about the proper way to measure phenomena out in the world, how to measure attitudes, behaviors, and so on. Uh, Diagnosing problems that are emerging and tracking their level, uh, you know, regionally tracking levels and so on. Uh, Advising on possible problems that could emerge as a result of, you know, interventions spearheaded by governments or uh, problems that could emerge just organically from societies that are afflicted with the pandemic and with economic crises. You know, modeling, you know, you know, a lot of social scientists are active in modeling the diffusion of the disease in different sorts of social contexts and trying to understand, uh, you know, how the how the structure of social networks shapes diffusion patterns. Um, You know, and we we also offer general background knowledge that gives decision makers important know how about just how do people think, how do people behave that they receive from us you know, in their formal educations and, and in reading, you know, beyond that. And then, yes, we do also have ideas for specific interventions as well. Uh, so not only can social science help, I think, I think it is helping, and I hope that it can help a lot more uh, in the future. And so, you know, one thing I keep coming back to when I think about our paper juxtaposed with this, uh, this comment, which again, I, I agree with a substantial amount of the substance of the comment, uh, is that I think that ideas about what affects human behavior are already being applied every day to address the pandemic, you know, by governments, public health officials, companies, social media platforms, ideas about cause and effect in society and with human behavior are already, you know, being applied. And sometimes those judgments are made by people with a lot of relevant knowledge, you know, people with social science training that work in government or social media companies, uh, and also public health professionals, who's, I think, formal training is, has been underrated. Um, but 
Also, it's sometimes made by people that don't have relevant background knowledge or don't or don't have complete background knowledge of what we what we think we know, who and a lot of people who are just thrust into incredibly difficult positions and situations where they could use help um, of all sorts. And so I think the question is, do we want our evidence to be a part of that conversation or should we hold back and self-censor because our findings aren't perfect, which they most certainly are not, you know, Um, just as one example that comes to mind. I gave a talk at Twitter in early April on how Twitter could help with effective pandemic response. And one of the points I made was on ethnic scapegoating, that there was good reason to think that during economic crises and during times of heightened uh, anxiety and stress, that you might see higher levels of ethnic scapegoating in various countries around the world that Twitter uh, has users in. And I think there's a high level of concern or at least awareness that social media platforms can become vehicles for not just, you know, bullying and uh, stigmatization of minorities, but even with Facebook's, you know, Facebook was used as a as a medium for facilitating genocide in Myanmar of the Rohingya. And, and so there's, I think, real risk, you know, to not paying close attention to that. And for all I know, when I said that to them, they already had that, you know, on their radar. But I don't know that they knew all the social science research that would suggest scapegoating of minorities goes up during economic crises and things like that. And so I think that, you know, that's just a simple thing where I can say there's an increased risk of this, you know. And so if you're trying to be really careful about it, as you should, you should you should be especially vigilant. Uh, you don't want a duplication of Myanmar. So that's going to think, should I have held back until I had tested that idea in a COVID-specific context? I don't think it was needed, you know, because I was just saying there's a hazard rate here that may be higher than you're thinking. And so you should be vigilant to this problem. Uh, so while I think advice and interventions are definitely better if they're tested in a COVID-specific context without question, and I'm personally doing that with my own work wherever possible or with all of my work, actually. I think it's also the case that we can't always wait. And, you know, often we have to make a decision right now and we have to decide, you know, will it be helpful to implement universal basic income to all Americans now? Or do we wait for field experiments post-COVID to validate that universal basic income, you know, is going to be effective in a post-COVID context? Do we want to apply findings from Ebola response on the value of trusted sources now? Or do we want to wait until they replicate post-COVID? Do we want to apply what we know about detecting and deterring misinformation, some of it from like just six months ago or a year ago? Or do we feel like we need to replicate it post-COVID with a different form of misinformation? And I think, you know, we have to make careful decisions about our level of confidence in our findings when we go to apply them. Um, And we also should, you know, be testing interventions in parallel as much as we can. But especially, you know, especially interventions with less accumulated evidence or riskier potential backfire effects, no question. But I think for a lot of things, inaction's not an option and not applying ideas about human behavior isn't an option. The question is just, will we help? And I, and I think we can, and I, I think we have. Okay, thanks, Rob. Uh, so, Samin, uh, you have an opportunity to, uh, to cross-examine Rob to asking specific questions uh, before you state your, uh, your negative case. Uh, what I'll say in response is part response and part what I had written out ahead of time, but I'll adapt a bit so that some of it will be maybe not a direct question, but like a reaction. Um, but yeah, I want to start by saying, likewise, I am a big fan of Rob's and I'm really flattered that he agreed to do this and to be here with him. And um, yeah, I think, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we end up finding a lot of, of places of agreement. I'm going to take a an extreme position partly to make this more interesting, but I actually think <laughs> I believe everything I'm going to say. So I'm not like, I'm not going to 
play devil's advocate and like that, I, I really do have a pretty extreme view of this, I think. So that one, maybe that is, will make it more interesting because I think you probably agree with a lot of the reasonable versions of what I might say. And I'll try to say some of the less reasonable things that I actually believe to keep this interesting. Um, I mean, one thing as I was thinking about this is that this debate about <clears throat> whether social science has something to contribute to COVID-19, COVID-19 now is is just life. So it's almost a debate about whether social science has anything to contribute to life <laughs> because everything we do now is affected by it. So if social science has something to say about almost any aspect of human life, then it's relevant to COVID-19. So I feel like my position has become... I now have to defend an even more extreme position than maybe a few months ago. But I think I'm up for it. I think I'm down for saying that um, there's not that much we have to usefully contribute. And I'll also say, and I said this ahead of time to Rob and the co-hosts, that I definitely don't feel like I can speak for other areas of social science besides psychology. So most of what I say will be specific to psychology. The little bit I know about other social sciences makes me think that things may, in fact, not be as bad in some of the other social sciences. So I, in fact, would be reluctant to extrapolate my argument to other social sciences. Um, so I think the main, the the main, there's two main points of disagreement. One is that I wouldn't, so when, when Rob says like, should we share what we know or should we hold back and self-censor? My disagreement is I don't think we know what we think we know. So sometimes I think what some people see as sharing what we know, I think of as, having too much confidence in findings that I don't think are robust. But the other part is that sharing what we know um, can be done in different ways. So even in cases where I think there is some some evidence that's better than nothing, which is probably rarer in my mind than in other people's mind, um, I think it's really, really important that we are totally upfront about how speculative it is, how untested it is, and so on. And I don't see psychology doing that. I feel like psychology hasn't admitted to itself the limitations of its own findings, so I don't trust it to be responsible in how it conveys those findings to policymakers or to the public. And I think there's huge risk in overclaiming um, when we talk about the usefulness of our findings for real-world issues. So um, in the paper, and I want to correct one thing you said, Mickey, the lead authors is actually shared between three people, um, so Hans Eiserman, Andrew Shabilsky, who you mentioned, but also Neil Lewis Jr. Is a shared, has shared first right. authorship. Um, so in that paper, we focus a lot on the steps necessary to get to application. Um, and I think we haven't done that. For In most psychology findings, we just know very, very little about how well they can be applied outside of the specific context in which the studies were run. But I think it's actually much worse than that. And here's where I definitely don't speak for my co-authors, but... Um, I don't think we have a good way to tell even just what's signal and what's noise in psychology. I don't think we know, not not whether it's applicable or not, but whether it even happened. So I think in the early days of like the replication crisis in psychology, there was a lot of this back and forth about, oh, well, if it happened once, it's an existence proof and we know that it can happen, but, but we don't even know that. I mean, we can't, we can't even specify very, very narrow artificial conditions in which we can reliably get effects. Our effects, we haven't been able to consistently replicate our effects in many cases, and that's such a low bar, like such a low bar. That's just saying that there's a signal there, it's not all noise. And an even lower bar is reproducibility. So not even collecting new data, but actually was there 
whether it's noise or a signal, was there an extreme effect or was there a pattern in this data set if I reanalyze the same data set? And we haven't even tested ourselves on that. We don't know if we even passed that bar. So both of those are really low bars that I don't think we've demonstrated we can pass. But let's say we fix that problem, we can pass those bars. Even once we pass those low bars, then that's when the conversation starts about, okay, what is it a signal of? That's when we can start talking about validity. Um, and then there's all kinds of problems that come up. So yes, it's replicable. Yes, there's a signal there, but maybe it's an artifact. Maybe it's a confound. And I feel like every morning when I wake up and look on Twitter, there's a new like existential threat to the validity of our common methods. So for example, this morning it was about how vignette studies that manipulate the name of the person in the vignette have all these confounds because different names imply different ages as well. Like they're often used to manipulate gender or race, but they also imply other attributes that are confounded with name. Or another day, it's about differential attrition in experiments being a huge confound that people often don't pay attention to. Or like one of mine that I don't hear people talking about very much, but that bugs me a lot is all these manipulations that are like, remember a time when you had a lot of power, you had less power or all these things. Remember a time is hugely confounded. If you ask a 19 year old to remember a time when they had a lot of power versus a time when they were relatively powerless, that's probably going to be confounded with recency of the memory. Like there's not that many situations where they were extremely powerful. So the ones that happened likely were recent or had some other different characteristics than the ones where they were low in power. We don't talk about all of these like really serious threats. So those effects would be replicable if they're driven by a confound or an artifact. So they would pass that very low bar, but we then we still have to worry about all these validity issues. And then I haven't even gotten to construct validity, which I think we have done a terrible job of establishing. And only then, once we have, we have okay, replicability, reproducibility, those are basically just reliability issues. Then we get into validity issues without generalizing. And then once we address all of those, then we can start talking about can we generalize? Can we apply it? And then, of course, we get into problems about understanding, you know, potential boundary conditions and moderators and all of that. Um, so when we get to application, we need to talk about does it scale? Can it be applied? Are the effects heterogeneous? Are the effects large or small? Are they larger or smaller than the next best alternative or the current practice? Are there side effects? Are there long-term side effects that we won't know until much later, et cetera? Like all of these become relevant, but only after we pass these other bars that I think psychology research very rarely clears. Um, so I think then it comes down to, okay, we agree that our research is flawed. We may disagree about how, just how fundamentally flawed it is, but let's say we agree that research is flawed. There's still some nuggets of useful information in there. I think we agree on that too, at least. Um, and then the question is, is something better than nothing? Like policymakers have to act, they don't have the choice not to act, and we have some information that they don't have. I think there's a couple of risks of the something beats nothing mindset. I think it can be valid sometimes, but I think some things we need to consider are whether our expertise as scientists in a field with a lot of problems is any better than the expertise of people on the ground who, sure, they're not scientists, they maybe don't have any background in social science, but they have other kinds of expertise. And when we come in and say, oh, but I'm a social scientist and I've done empirical studies, is that better than the expertise that they've formed through their experience and their informed judgment? So I think we have to be careful saying that ours should overrule theirs. There's also the danger that we're leveraging the credibility of science in general when we say, you should listen to us because we have empirical evidence, we're scientists, blah, blah, blah. If we oversell, if we turn out to be wrong or to have been overconfident 
in a way that was irresponsible. It's okay to be wrong, you know, in a way that was unforeseeable. But if it was foreseeable, we should have presented it differently. Then that could undermine what if a vaccine comes along and people have lost trust in science because we put the same hat on. We said, we're scientists too, trust us. And we were responsible about that. But even if it doesn't spread to like distrust of other sciences, even if it only leads people to be less um, to find us less credible, that's still bad for us. We're setting ourselves up to make it harder to rebuild that credibility and that trust in the future. So I think we should be careful about that. And I think the something beats nothing mindset is sometimes used to excuse our mistakes. Uh, like, okay, sure, we didn't take the steps we needed to ensure that things are replicable, reproducible, have construct validity, don't have confounds, etc. Um, but at least we have something and at least it's better than nothing. And I feel like that's avoiding owning up to our mistakes. We should have done better as a field. We have a responsibility to the public. We take public money. Why haven't we been taking those steps? Why haven't we been prioritizing that? And I feel like we're making excuses sometimes when we take the something beats nothing approach. We're very thankful to our returning sponsor, uh, The Great Courses Plus. Now, what is that? It is a streaming service where you can take courses from actual experts who, unlike the two of us, are really good at teaching. So those are real professors, people who are deeply immersed in their fields and who know how to teach and engage with people. And I will say also that the video production quality on these things is really impressive as somebody who has recently been trying to put together video lectures. I'm like, wow, blown away by how good these things look. Yeah, I, I agree. The video is top notch, and the, the 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 range of courses is also you know amazing. Um, one class that we highly recommend is one called the Intelligent Brain, and you know as many of our listeners know, intelligence is a controversial topic, but one that is so deeply important uh, in the history of psychology, but also in contemporary psychology. And this course is taught by none other than Richard Heyer, who is the editor-in-chief of the journal called Intelligence, so a, a true expert. And, you know, looking at the, the, the topics uh, in the course, I mean, it covers it all, whether it be assessment, you know, with the definition of intelligence, um, you know, controversies in the measurement of intelligence, uh, genetics and intelligence, and, and even the final lecture is, you know, I must admit, you know, piqued my curiosity, is titled The IQ Pill, which gets at the idea of what can we do to, to enhance uh, potentially enhance our IQ, and what are some of the ethical considerations of doing that? So, lots of courses on offer, and this is just you know one uh, of the many that uh, we recommend. That's right. So, you know, if intelligence for whatever reason is not your thing, the Great Courses Plus has a huge selection of subjects. So, really, anything, uh, something for everybody's interest. So, you can learn to become a great writer. You can learn about mindfulness. You can delve into astrophysics. Whatever you're interested in, the Great Courses Plus likely has a course about it. And with their app, you can take those courses anytime, anywhere. Uh, you can stream those courses wherever you are with your device. So it's super easy to learn about something new and interesting. And Mickey, we have a special offer for our listeners, do we not? We do. It's, I think, really exciting. Um, you know, you can sign up today for the Great Courses Plus, and our listeners uh, get a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library. Um, that's access to any and all the courses for free. Uh, so don't wait. Sign up today uh, using our special URL. Uh, so to start your free trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. 
And we want to thank uh, the Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode. Rob, if you want to ask any direct questions of Samin based on what she just said, you can you have an opportunity now. And then after that, we can, can just be a bit more, little bit less formal and just have more of a conversation. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, here, here'd be one question. I mean, I agree with a lot of these points. Sorry, I'm not formulating this as a question. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that social psychology worked in a, in a mode that created unreliable findings for decades. I also think you know, it got, it got really bad. I believe it got worse over time. And then I think it's gotten a lot better. You know, I'm, I think more optimistic about trends over the last five years. And honestly, I mean, you, you know, your activism's had a real impact on the field, a positive one, in my opinion. Uh, it's had a lot of influence over, over, over me. Um, but I do think we do know things. And I also think that decision makers that we have, that we would operate through, you know, in having impact on the world for the most part. We can't do direct interventions. We operate through government, organizations, et cetera. You know, they're not dopes, you know, like they're, you know, they're skeptical consumers of our information, at least in my experience. They they want to see, you know, they, they're open, in my experience anyway, it's a biased experience, but they're open to doing collaborative original data collection. You know, they want to know the quality of the evidence. They've heard of the replication crisis, you know, and are concerned about it. Uh, and so I, I think that, you know, they're not dopes and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're skeptical. And so I think the concern that we'll just bully them with like the institution of science, I think we blew that, you know, with the replication crisis and, and they're, they're more skeptical than they would have been. Um, but one thing with the something versus nothing, just as one counterpoint, I'd be interested in your take on this paper. So, uh, I don't know if you know this paper by, uh, Abhit Banerjee, the like Nobel prize winning development economist, where he, it's like the most amazing paper I've ever read, ever read. This guy's like sample sizes are bananas. Uh, he does amazing work, but uh, he sent, uh, he did like a, an SMS, like a, like a messaging campaign in West Bengal, India, and sent messages like a 2.5 minute, like a, like a 150 second video of him. <laughs> He's, he is a prestigious figure in West Bengal, India, uh, this state in India. Uh, with him encouraging some basic public health guidelines and sent this via text message to like 25 million people in this in this state, like so roughly the population of Canada, right? And found that it led to, it was compared to like a 3 million person control condition. It led to like a doubling of reported health symptoms uh, to local public health officials, decreased travel beyond one's village uh, by 20%, increased hand washing by 7%, and then had spillover effects to like, people that weren't even treated that were just nearby. So like really impressive results. And I actually don't know the fate of this intervention. I assume it was scaled up, you know, it should, certainly should have been given these results. Um, and I just, I just think if we were, and this is the kind of intervention that could have come out of social psychology, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of behavioral econ slash social psych type intervention that, you know, it's, it, it's, it fits with a lot of our research, you know, trusted sources that have prestige will have more influence and can change attitudes and behavior. And I just am mindful that if Banerjee had gone through like the evidence readiness levels that you all have recommended in your paper, or just been more cautious, say he slowed it down and was like, I'm not going to do this until I test whether, you know, trusted legitimate sources can have influence in COVID, you know, not just in general. Um, then, you know, these positive effects would have been delayed six weeks during like a rapidly accelerating you know, public health crisis. And, you know, to be honest, like people, not, I don't want to be like melodramatic, but like people probably would have died that didn't die, 
you know, if they if he had slowed down with this intervention. Um, but I think that he was not wrong to go forward. So I don't know. What's your take on that? that this yeah. Is a, so I have two a, reactions to that. Not a proper question. Um, so my first, I think that sounds great. That sounds like a good, uh, good decision to do that study. And I support it. I won't talk about the evidence readiness levels in the paper. It's not something I feel very strongly about. So I don't want to going to whether yeah i don't know if i think that things need to go through all those steps i think the what you said so it could have come out of social psych but it didn't and that doesn't sound anything like social psych studies i see almost ever and when i do see social psych studies like that they're done by non-psychologists like on the episode of our podcast that we just released today we talk about a paper that also takes a social psych theory the contact hypothesis and tests it in a pre-registered longitudinal high sample size field experiment with actual behavioral measures done by a non-psychologist, one of your colleagues at Stanford, a, a graduate student actually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I see stuff like that and I'm like, what the fuck are we doing? Like why, why does it take people outside our field to actually do the critical test of the things that we talk about? Like we talk and talk and talk and we do crappy little studies, including me. I do crappy little studies. I don't do the study that would be a really definitive test of the thing I care about. So to me, it's not much of a counter argument to the issues in psychology, although it is a good, I think, case that social science more broadly has produced useful stuff. The other thing I don't know, so I don't know the study you're talking about, which shows my ignorance in this area. I'm definitely not a good expert to be talking about COVID research because that's not my area of expertise. But, um, but it sounds to me like something that even without theory, and I re recognize where I'm going as a slippery slope, but it sounds kind of commonsensical. And I think there are mm -hmm. a lot of the recommendations that you could take from the social science <clears throat> literature that you could also just take from being a reasonable human being who's thought about these issues and n with no scientific background per se, but just like experience uh, with humans and maybe in a professional, you know, role where you have to try to change people's behavior a lot, I think you would have come to a lot of the same conclusions that like get, having the message delivered by a trusted source is really important. I, I don't know that we need to point to science to try that. Like that seems like a good idea to try without, you know, if there weren't a couple of studies with 40 or 100 undergrads, I would still be just as confident. Right? My prior doesn't change much based on the psych studies that have been done for many of these conclusions, then partly because my prior was already quite strong for a lot of these ideas. Um, and I'm going to contradict this later and say that in some other cases, I feel like the advice is so wishy-washy as to be basically useless to say sometimes it should come from this kind of source and other times it should, should that would backfire and we don't exactly know when. So I, I have this like split reaction to a lot of these recommendations that, that the, these reactions kind of contradict each other, which is sometimes I feel like, well, that's so obvious. We should do that regardless of what the science says when this, you know, the science is so weak compared to the common sense and other times i have the reaction that like this this um, recommendation is so useless because it just says like do this or don't do it but you know one or the other <laughs> um so I, I imagine we'll get into some of those other latter cases later on so, so i'm definitely receptive to the point that this sounds a lot more like a behavioral econ <clears throat> study than a social psych study. i mean in part just the scale the emphasis on behavior, the field experimental context. I totally concede that point. But just just as a as another example, so 
I've been working on a field experiment for, or kind of like a survey slash field experiment hybrid for a few months, like trying to get, uh, and making some progress of late, trying to get a social media platform to promote, um, public service announcements from more politically and demographically diverse celebrities than the current ecosystem of public service announcements in the US. And this, you know, the idea being, you know, right now, uh, you're primarily going to see people that you would assume are liberal and highly educated and urban and coastal espousing the need to to do the things that the CDC is telling us to do. And, uh, and so that it's you know, no wonder, I mean, there's there's other problems as well, but this is a contributing factor to the polarization of response and seriousness around COVID. And could, if we could depolarize the celebrities that are, you know, encouraging people to wear masks, you know, that that could help. And so what, a, what we've been trying to do in my lab is like develop, you know, with a production company, these public service announcements that would come from at least, you know, right-leaning or legible to conservative Americans, um, COVID public health line, uh, guideline promoting compliance promoting videos. And, uh, and we found that social media platforms have been like, no, that's like, that's, a, you know, we may or may not work with you on this, but that's definitely like a novel idea to us. Um, and, you know, potentially worthwhile. And it's similar to Banerjee. Of course, it's not as good as Banerjee because nobody is Banerjee. But, uh, you know, it, it is similarly influenced by the social science literature. So like, and, and some of it, the social psychology literature. So for example, our understanding of polarization and the role of, um, you know, political elites in polarizing the mass public's views on issues like public health, political issues is informed by the rich polarization uh, and political psychology literatures from psychology and political science. And that's influenced our thinking about this intervention and our thinking about how trusted sources can have a disproportionate effect on on compliance and can really be like a high leverage tool not just like it has a significant effect common sense for sure i agree but that it's like one of your highest leverage tools that's informed in part by our understanding of the obama administration and world health organizations effective interventions in west africa to address the ebola epidemic um, where they were having a lot of trouble trying to advise people to do where initially they were having trouble advising people to do counterintuitive things like wash your hands 10 times a day or don't go to a family member's funeral. But then they found that if they got people of faith in the local community to communicate uh, these recommendations, that it went a lot further. And they, they thought of this as sort of an indispensable part of Ebola response. So, you know, we've been reading this social science literature. It comes from development econ. It comes a little bit from political psychology. It comes from political science. It comes from, frankly, just being trained in social influence research for, you know, two decades. And all of that kind of influenced our idea. And it's it's a solid idea that somebody had to do. Um, and so I, I just, I don't know, and I'm a social psychologist. So I, I think that we are capable of coming up with ideas based on the prior literature and theoretical knowledge that's been built in our field and in neighboring fields that can make a difference. Yeah, it's hard to answer that without going into specifics and I don't know your study or that literature well enough to get into specifics. I guess my impressionistic reaction is I'm surprised, this is going to sound very harsh, but I'm surprised that someone mm -hmm. could take the social psych literature and you're claiming that you relied on other things as well. But if we, if we distilled it to like, can you take the social psych literature and distill from that a clear hypothesis about what ought to work better than what else with confidence? 
my impression of the social psych literature, and I would include personality psych and probably developmental and clinical psych, and uh, let's make a lot of enemies while I'm here, um, mm. <laughs> is that you could take any statement X or its opposite and find pretty good theoretical and empirical basis for it in the literature. And I would be shocked if for any statement X you could find a, a reason to have a pretty confident, precise estimate of the magnitude of the effect or even the relative magnitude compared to other potential interventions you might try. Like, oh, we, we could choose to test either this intervention or that intervention. I think we know or we have good reason to believe from the literature that this one is going to be more effective than that one. Even that, I would find very, I would be very pleasantly surprised to see that independent readers of the social psych literature could come to a conclusion like that. I think if you bring in other social sciences, if you bring in real world examples like, you know, the Ebola outbreak and lessons from that, if you bring in lessons from politics and things like that, then I think, sure, social psych can be like one of the many things that can lead to a really good design and hypothesis. And I'm guessing that's your situation is that it is a very good study. It does rely a bit on social psych. But my guess, if I looked more deeply, is that I wouldn't be convinced that social psych was a major contributor to you being able to come up with this good idea for a study. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. I'm a very multidisciplinary researcher. So, you know, when I have research ideas of whatever quality, they're often influenced by different disciplines, which says more about me probably than anything else. But, you know, I don't I don't think it it would be right to say that there is as much evidence in the social psych literature for the opposite claim on this one, you know, uh, as for the affirmative yeah. claim. So this is uh, where I want to, yeah. I want to like play both sides sure. of this <laughs> argument where like okay. either it's so obvious that common sense would have led you to the same claim or when it's not obvious, then I think it's the case that often you could find evidence on both sides. So uh, yeah, I, I recognize like the, the unfairness of my argument that I'm trying to say, I'm kind of doing the thing I'm accusing social psych of doing where it's like either a or not a, um, right. Yeah. So without knowing your specific hypothesis, I, I don't know if I would, if I could categorize it into one of those two bins. Can I, I want to interject a little bit. Um, and so one theme I'm hearing a little bit is uh, from you, Samin, and maybe a little bit from you as well, Rob, um, is, you know, the, the, a lot of these hypotheses are obvious and, and we knew it all along. And I, I think I share that intuition, um, like looking at, um, at the Nature of Human Behavior paper. But it, what is wrong with that exactly? Um, so we have an obvious claim, uh, or one that we think that's obvious, you know, uh, an influential source will convince more people than uh, a non-influential source. And we don't need, you know, Richard Petty to tell us that, you know, uh, we've known that even before he, he came on the scene. Is that inherently a problem for social science or social, social psychology specifically? I think the problem is that when we're, when there's a recommendation that goes against intuition, is it, should we give it any weight? Should we give the science any weight? And if all the weight is coming just from the common senseness of these things, then that has really important implications for whether we need a seat at the table. Like, do social scientists need to be there if the only recommendations that we really ought to follow are the ones that would have been obvious or followed anyway? Um, and I think I would say only some of the things I've heard, both in this paper, but also more generally, um, I've I've seen high profile cases of of both, so like really obvious things that I think you would you don't need a social scientist to tell you that. But I've also seen high profile cases of things I think we shouldn't at all recommend. We don't know, um, or are 
super wishy-washy don't actually recommend anything just say like either do this or don't do it but depending on the situation but we definitely don't really know what aspects of the situation so i think it's not if it was just obvious advice then the only thing i would say is like well then don't ask for a seat at the table that seems like a waste give that seat to someone who has something extra to contribute besides common sense but it's not it's a mix of obvious advice and then advice that um doesn't actually imply any particular action or is very wishy-washy. And then there's a third category, which is confidently held clear counterintuitive advice that I just think is really irresponsible because it probably wouldn't replicate or we don't have good reason to think it would replicate. And that that's on the list too. So like as I was reading the, the nature of human behavior paper, but also again, like reading op-eds or reading other places where people make the case that psychology has a lot to contribute those are kind of the three bins of reactions I have. Like, no one would have doubted this. This doesn't point to any clear action, or this points to a clear action that wasn't obvious, and it's probably bad advice. It probably wouldn't replicate. We don't actually know this. It's foolish to be confident about that. So there's not a fourth category of, uh, this is probably good advice, and I wouldn't necessarily have thought of it in, in, in advance? I'm sure there are a few things in that bin, but I don't think there's a lot. So I wanted to interject that I think I think it's a really important point to consider that maybe the best recommendations duplicate common sense here. And uh, I think it's important that we reflect on the fact that we have lots of intuitions out, you know, that we have so many intuitions and, and many of them are contradictory. And so, you know, there's there's been a you know, there's been this line of research in uh, well, or maybe it's more like examples where sociologists will highlight, you know, you know, like, oh, everybody thinks they know this. And then they also think they know the exact opposite. And so you can't really surprise anybody with a social science finding. And that's, you know, because everybody has some intuition developed in part because social scientific phenomena are so heavily moderated that you probably have seen, you know, uh, phenomena cut both ways at some point. Um, so I, th I think being able to weigh in and say, no, no, but this is much more common than this. And it is but that's the comparative and that's the thing where effect sizes are really important, where precision is really important and where I don't see. I mean, like, OK, so let's imagine you're a university and you're trying to decide whether to reopen and have in-person classes in reading the literature, that, not in depth at a very, very superficial level. It sounds like some of the stuff on leadership says um, don't sanction, don't tell people we're going to punish you if you have parties. You should instead show that you trust them to do the right thing, blah, blah. But also don't send the message that we're special and we're unique and we're invulnerable. Like you don't want to encourage this narcissistic group, collective narcissism. So what do you say then? What's the, so both of those I agree are common sense and kind of go against each other. I mean, they don't, they're not completely inconsistent with each other, but they kind of point towards opposite um, actions. If you're a university administrator trying to decide a concrete thing about what message to send and but I believe both of those effects would replicate in the specific context that they were studied. But then, but if you actually pitted them against each other, which one is bigger? Is it more important not to tell people that you're going to punish them and you don't trust them? Or is it more important not to let people think they're special and, you know, invulnerable and our group is any is, is immune or whatever? I don't know which of those is a bigger effect, which of those is more important or what I should practically do. I mean, this, but this points to me to the need to use the social psychology or really the social science literature in general as, uh, you know, primarily as a source of good ideas or potential good ideas for interventions, which you would then test 
before fully scaling out, you know, which is something we encourage in our paper, you encourage in your paper, everybody kind of agrees, if at all possible, at, you know, show caution and try to test in a specific context and use the, the accumulated research to suggest good ideas. I guess I find it disappointing that that's all we have to contribute. Like, I feel like after all the grant money, all the effort, everything else, we should have more than just good ideas. I think we do. I mean, I think sometimes we can go straight to reasonable recommendations or um, or interventions as Banerjee did, you know, but um, but I think that that's not a useless, you know, role. Like I do a lot of work in political consulting, consulting on political research and campaigns. And, you know, this is this is the way the work works, you know, it's like there's a there's a bunch of people who are trained in the social sciences that are either in the social sciences, advising campaigns and political organizations or have left academia and work in these places. They bring the ideas from the literature. Uh, they try to test them in specific campaign contexts before rolling them out in a really costly form of intervention. And, you know, that's just that's just kind of how it works. And I think that's how a lot of yeah. medical interventions work. Also like how a lot of economic interventions mm-hmm. work is you, you try that to evaluate me. them. That's, I really hope that's not how a lot of medical interventions work, but I think you're probably right. But I think that's bad. It shouldn't work that way. I mean, like if you, why aren't we doing a little bit more than just putting out ideas with like a tiny little drop of very narrow evidence? Like why don't, why can't we as a field pick some topics that we think deserve a really big investment and do some of that work? And I mean, it's hard it's hard to talk about these things without giving concrete examples. And then when you give concrete examples, yeah. you're like picking on somebody. But I'm going to pick two examples that come to mind of like topics that are really, really important, have huge potential application and implications for real life, where the work was, I think, way below the standards we should have for such an important topic. So one is and I don't know this work very well, so I apologize. But just this, this is my reading as a non-expert in these areas. So one is the work by Christopher Bryan and colleagues on increasing voter turnout by using noun versus verb messages. Um, I think that's a hugely important topic. If that intervention really worked as well as they claim, that's really important to know. But the amount of effort that was invested in the original studies was quite low the kind of plausibility of their effect sizes, it should have been, we should have been incredibly skeptical of it from the beginning. And then someone did bother to do really intensive, I think, really effortful replications, found no effect or very, very small effects. And it's still, where are we as a field if we can't correct that and we can't, right? I feel like even when there is good evidence, that good evidence doesn't beat out the bad evidence. And that makes me very pessimistic as a field that we care about getting it right on really, really important issues like voter turnout. Or another one is the one, the registered reports that just came out on the reversal extinction effect, retrieval extinction effect. So again, this has huge implications for helping people overcome trauma. um, And so there was this paper published in Nature that claimed to show that if you reactivate a memory right before the extinction phase, that extinction works better. I think I'm probably butchering this. And then a replication study as a registered report and a reproduction attempt of the original research found no evidence for this effect. And the original authors doubled down in a letter to the LA Times saying, oh, but there's a bunch of conceptual replications that they didn't mention the fact that their own work didn't reproduce with their own data. So no correction, no sense that like, oh, this is a really important issue and maybe we got it wrong. And now there's this higher quality evidence and we should adjust. And so it's when, when, even when really important 
things with ap applied implications are at stake, I don't feel like we do a good job. So I don't trust us as a field when we show over and over again that we can't tell the difference between high quality evidence and low quality evidence that we'll get it right when it matters. And I think it should be on us. It shouldn't just be like, oh, well, if you're going to apply it, you do the work to make sure it's robust or generalizes or whatever. Well, so I can't speak to those two papers, which I just don't know well enough to, to speak intelligently on. But I agree with the larger point that our norms are not what they should be, even though I think they've gotten a lot better, a lot better. I mean, just the existence of registered reports that we're talking about them is such such progress that that that, that exists and is is moving to be like a central research activity in our field after being, you know, unheard of four years ago or five years ago or what have you. I mean, that's that's it. You just as someone who kind of started as a spectator to social psychology and now is, is I think, pretty, you know, a full participant, like I would never have expected that kind of rapid change. So I, I personally see the rapid change in methodological rigor in social psychology as cause for optimism. Um, but to circle back on the point of like, is it bad for us to use the literature as a source of plausible hunches about potentially successful interventions that we usually will and will certainly always prefer to test in a specific context and usually will if we're not in a you know like a a crisis that's rapidly developing where we have to take some kind of action and we have some you know relatively high confidence evidence there you might just not even collect new data you might go straight to intervention but as some people have but in general we would prefer to have this way station of like no no let's see if it works on this problem specifically i guess i'm not so troubled with that model and i also don't think it's that different from the model that you all advance in your paper you know like the evidence readiness level which which i didn't realize you <laughs> you weren't fully on you know you're not closely wedded to um i feel like that's just a, kind of like a slower more elaborated version of that model and I think that's reasonable and, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with the model. I just haven't thought about it enough. I wasn't as involved with that part of the paper. And I, I, think, I think I'm just not there yet because my feeling is like, let's just do one good study on something. Like if something's important, let's do one registered report where we stick to the plan and we follow the conclusions where they lead us. That's the other thing is even I've been reading registered reports for a meta science project I'm doing. The authors often claim something inconsistent with the results, even in a registered report. Like we're so bad at accepting when things fail, being open to the possibility that there is no effect, et cetera. So even registered reports aren't going to be, you know, a magic bullet, but I don't, yeah, I mean, I should aim higher and I should want the evidence readiness levels, but at this point I'd be happy with just like the studies that we do do, make them good studies. Like just don't do crappy studies. Don't waste our time with crappy studies anymore. And if something's really important, like, put some effort i know it's hard and i'm lazy too but let's put some effort into like construct validity into getting actual behavior if actual behavior is what we care about into increasing our sample sizes which i know is an old mm -hmm. refrain now but we still have haven't done that as much as we should and and into yeah like making a plan and sticking to it and following the results where they lead us like all of those are such basic things right we teach them probably even in high school but certainly to first year college students but we don't do them and that's frustrating to me so yes like the evidence readiness levels that to me feels like wishing for you know a magical unicorn ride to Candyland. but i would settle for just higher quality evidence to begin with yeah and i think if we had higher quality evidence to begin with you wouldn't need quite so many steps i mean i think that the evidence readiness level is a little overly elaborated and cautious and makes more sense if you're trying to launch a space shuttle which you don't have to do versus 
act intelligently against a pandemic where you must take action. Yeah, you know? I mean, I am sympathetic to the like, sometimes we have to do something. And I, in those cases, my beef is more with the like, let's not put the veneer of like, this is a scientifically blah, blah, blah. Let's just say this is our best guess. It's not based on much. Hopefully it, mm-hmm. it works and hopefully it doesn't do harm. And I do think there are cases where we really need to seriously consider the possibility that it'll do harm. But there are cases where I think we can reason our way to the conclusion that the likelihood of harm is pretty low. So we might, like, especially with messaging and communication things, I think there's less risk of unintentional side effects. But there, I, I just worry about wanting to wear the same hat as the real scientists and the damage that that could do. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I mean, we're obviously now, or now I'm saying we on behalf of all the co-authors I said I wouldn't speak for, uh, but, you know, we took great pains to express caution with our recommendations and to say this could have this effect, you know, this may have this effect, you know, to not overclaim the certainty, uh, you know, what we were saying. And, you know, we encouraged data collection in more specific context and, you know, further data collection wherever possible. And so, you know, and we emphasized cultural moderation is very likely on lots of these interventions. Uh, you know, a lot of the same points that you all made. Um, and, I, you know, and I think that's right. But for whatever it's worth, we still, we, so then if we do that enough, then we get hammered for being mealy-mouthed and not making strong enough recommendations. But sometimes from these same people who will say, you need to express uncertainty that's appropriate to the literature. And you can't you can't have both things, or we couldn't figure out a way to make both. Yeah, no, I think the recommendations are quite wishy-washy, but I think that's better than making <laughs> strong recommendations that are unwarranted. But I think to me, it mm-hmm. shows just how not solid of a foundation we're on, that that's the best we can do. And it's, it's okay. I think it's forgivable. It's okay that we haven't done more up until now, but I want us to own up to it and to be like, and this is also, I mean, when, when I think of the paper as what you said, plausible hunches about possible interventions, that sounds fine to me. Like I agree that social science can contribute that, but I think so can a lot of non-social scientists, right? Like I don't think social scientists necessarily have that much more of an advantage in formulating plausible hypotheses. I think we have a little bit more. I'm not going to say none, Um, but and it's also consistent with what I tell my non-academic friends and family if they like buy a popular psychology book by someone I know and they're like, oh, like, do you know this person? Should I do what it says in this book? And I say, eh, if it, if it fits with your intuition, your common sense, you think it'll help you, absolutely go for it. Don't do it because the science says so. But like, if I think some of those books actually have great advice, not so much because of the like small n p-hacked studies behind them, but just because these people have thought about these issues and are wise. I think if we present it that way with very little leaning on the evidence, then I'm much more okay with it. Um, So, Samin, uh, would you give the same recommendation uh, to a friend who bought uh, a book on horoscopes? Yeah, um, I certainly, yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference in degree um, and I might be less generous and charitable in my interpretation of the wisdom of an author of a book on horoscopes than I am of a psychologist writing a popular book. Like I think a psychologist writing a popular book has at least average common sense, probably like they are successful in their career and they got a book contract and they, whatever. Um, Whereas someone writing a book on horoscopes could very well be a con artist and might actually be out to harm their readers. So I might not give exactly the same advice, but like, like Brene Brown, I think the same thing. Like, I don't, I mean, she is, I guess, an academic, I'm not sure, but I don't think she leans on that identity. It's more like this is her experience and she has some wisdom to share. And I think a lot of popular psychology books should be read the same way, which is not nothing. That's some 
valuable contribution. And I know a lot of people who've benefited a lot from the popular psychology books they've read. Um, all right. So I think, uh, you all, we should maybe uh, take a quick break. Um, I, I, I see, Rob, you want to get in there. We'll definitely have more time for that, um, a bit more back and forth. And then we can uh, maybe we'll jump straight to the questions from uh, people on Twitter who were, uh, I think, excited to, uh, to hear what you two thought. So we'll be back in a little bit. Could you see its opposition comes arising up sometime? That it's dreadful and position comes a blacking in my mind. That I see a darkness, and that I see a darkness, and that I see a darkness, and that I see a darkness. Did you know how much I love you? There's a hope that somehow you could save me from this darkness. Someday, buddy, we've got peace in our lives Together or apart, alone or with our wives That we can stop out, pouring and pull the smiles inside And light up forever and never go to sleep My best unbeaten brother, this isn't all I see Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. We both check the mentions and the DMs for that account. If you'd like to email us, our email is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website where you can find all of our episodes is fourbeers.com. You can drop us a line there as well. If you're enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It's really helpful in helping other people find us. Mickey, have I left anything out? No, I think we're good. So I think we had an original plan of, uh, you know, going to our crowdsource questions, but, uh, you know, Samin and Rob are really into it. So I think we'll let them continue. Um, but I will maybe start off by saying I'm into my second mead. Uh, this is again by uh, Royal Canadian Mead. This one's called an All Day Croquet, a wildflower peach session mead. Wow. So, uh, that, that, sounds, uh, <laughs> that sounds very uh, manly of you <laughs> um i've just been drinking whiskey as we go i don't even know how many glasses excellent samin how's your ipa my pale ale um about 80 percent full all right well it's 9 30 in the morning so <laughs> any bit is impressive so i i think where we left off um rob was very excited to get a word in so uh rob do you want to take it yeah, I just want to like back up and, and recenter the debate a little bit, which is that I'm like totally sold that social psychology, especially up to like a few years ago, and I, I, I have my own complaints that I could layer on to what Samina is saying, uh, has been troubled and is not as replicable as it should be. And we should have more nuanced theories that are able to be applied in diverse settings. You know, we should have a better, more nuanced understanding of moderators and so on. I totally sold on all that wasn't the central perp you know 
purpose of our paper it wasn't wasn't to argue against that nor nor is it our debate resolution today um instead what we were saying is that you can extract useful insights for the pandemic from the social science literature not just social psychology though i think you can also from social psychology and that if you were to like limit yourself with a sort of like artificial evidence weighting system that kind of that seems almost insurmountable or nearly so that you would lose the opportunity to do some good things in the world so i just want to highlight because i think this stuff always gets better with specific examples because really like strictly speaking like i just need more examples of like positive interventions than backfiring interventions to like fulfill the resolution right and i think there are examples of interventions that either could be used uh, usefully or have been used in which you know that are relevant to the central purpose of the debate so for example david rand uh, a collaborator of mine has been working on a crowdsourcing fake news intervention uh, that he's in development with Facebook, uh, trying to you know figure out a way to implement it on the platform. He's been working with them for like a year. And he also has an accuracy nudging uh, intervention they developed with Gordon Pennycook that's designed to you know increase people's discernment around misinformation that he's working on you know on applying on TikTok. And these are more or less going to be you know directly applied from their social science form that you would have seen in the articles. They didn't like require, you know, lots of preliminary, but you know, who knows? They're going to study the findings on the platform and then they'll say maybe it backfires in some unexpected way. I'd be surprised, but it could. Uh, you know, Sander van der Linden, who's also a co-author on our paper, is working with the UK Prime Minister's crisis communications team to implement a pre-bunking intervention to reduce the efficacy of vaccine misinformation. Obviously, they're going to test that before they roll it out, you know, so that if it backfires and deters people from taking the vaccine, that would be horrible. So they're going to, you know, scale it out. Probably would look something like the evidence readiness level system in terms of its rollout, but not as cautious, not as many steps, you know, like probably a couple steps, something more conventional. Um, you know, we, let's hear Kim Whedon, who's a co-author, co-author on our paper, did a modeling paper with Ben Cornwell, where they modeled uh, network diffusion dynamics of COVID in school contexts and really emphasized, you know, that there's like a huge problem in school contexts because they're small world networks, which are very favorable to the diffusion of diseases. And then uh, in college contexts, big classes drive a huge chunk of this. And it's not just that this paper is insightful. It was like directly applied by universities who were trying to figure out how to make decisions in the spring or sorry, in the summer for, for the fall. Um, and, you know, there's assumptions that went into that model. It's not a perfect model, I'm sure, but it was better. You know, these are like complex, you know, agent-based dynamics with non-linear outcomes. Like you can't ask a university administrator who has training in other areas to just know how to do that. Uh, you know, it's not common sense. Um, like, why would you know the small world's literature, you know, networks literature? It's, you know, it's a technical literature. And then you got like Emily Oster, who's an economist, who's like emerged as a major expert on school reopening because she's taken the data very seriously and is like gathering the data, you know? So there's like social scientists who are really making a difference here and helping people make intelligent decisions in the mass public and also in institutions and government. Um, and then there's other stuff that could be done that I, I wish would be done. Like my colleague at Stanford, Johannes Eichstadt, has developed a, a mental health tracking tool where he uses Twitter data and, and text analysis to assess depression levels by region and, you know, can you know, with some level of accuracy, track levels of depression in the United States, States as it changes over time. And, you know, there's, I would say, the mental health crisis that's likely happening, that we have some evidence is happening, partly because psychologists are measuring it. Uh, we want to keep track of it. You know, it's, it's helpful to understand how big of a problem it is, where it's a problem. 
I don't know all the things that decision makers might do with that knowledge, but I can't, I can't imagine they would not want that knowledge, you know, like where in the state that I govern, do we have a mental health crisis? Is it bigger in the central Valley of California or in LA and San Francisco? You know, like basic stuff like that is, is helpful to know where to send, I don't know, like Narcan and things like that. Cause these depression scores have been, uh, associated with deaths of despair. So, you know, we can do stuff. And that's kind of that's the central point that I want to make. And I, I think the evidence is is good for that. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks for laying that out. Um, I think there's a couple of clear points of agreement between us. And I so I so let me try to distill where I think the agreement and disagreement might be. And the disagreement might not be so much with you, but with my imagined adversary. <laughs> um, so the agreement is, I think, <laughs> so first ideas, I think we agree that social science at least provides ideas or hunches that are useful. We might debate about how much more wise or insightful those ideas are than a non-social scientist could come up with, but at least a little bit more, let's say. The other point of agreement, and you mentioned this in your opening statement too, and it came up at least implicitly in what you just said, is that I think we have expertise in methods. We don't always use it ourselves, but I think if someone came to us and said, I really want to know whether college students are more likely to X or to Y or whatever. I think we would say, I could design a study that would do a really good job of that. And I think we could. I don't know why we don't. But I do have faith in our ability in principle and in the abstract, especially if someone else is going to carry it out, I think we could design the study. And I think that's useful. Um, I think where we disagree is then that third component, so the ideas, methods. The third thing you could say that social science has to usefully contribute is knowledge or evidence. And here, speaking just for psych, is where I think I get annoyed when people point to evidence because my reaction is like, look at these other things. Like, let's just take the retrieval extinction thing. So published in Nature has a prestigious outlet that supposedly is extremely picky, rejects the vast majority of social science papers submitted to it. <clears throat> The, author, the senior author is extremely eminent, very, very well respected, um, had multiple studies, has been conceptually replicated, all of these hallmarks, right? There is, you can't, some people might say like, oh, but in hindsight, we should have known that it wouldn't replicate, but we didn't. We didn't know that, we didn't tell the world that, we didn't stop citing it, we didn't promote it as, a, we didn't stop promoting it as a potential solution to people's, real people's problems. So you have to tell me if you're pointing to evidence from the same field that keeps fucking it up so badly on other equally important things, why is your evidence better than that? And then I think one answer is it's not psychology. So if you're telling me, okay, okay, but that's psychology's problem, there's evidence that's not psychology, then I think, okay, this shows that we really need meta-science to be able to say which fields and subfields are fucking up and which fields and subfields can we trust so that we don't paint everyone with the same brush and we don't say just because psychology has not been able to tell the difference between a high quality study and a low quality study that doesn't mean that other fields can't and that's where i think metascience is actually working really hard on that i'm trying to quantify which fields are better at self-correction which fields are better at you know calibrating confidence and claims to the quality of the evidence and so on and i think i don't trust psychology anymore it's let me down too many times but i am open to the possibility that other fields and i have seen some evidence that other fields are better at that so i think those are some points of agreement and some maybe disagreement. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate a lot of your, a lot of what you're saying. And I definitely think meta science work can do a lot of favors for us. I mean, one relevant point for meta science, which I think you kind of already made is that, um, like, if you look at 
you know, all the replication studies that have been happening over the last few years, especially these like many labs projects, which you all are much more familiar with than me. Uh, as far as I know, they don't find significant opposite direction effects very commonly. Like I've seen at least one analysis of this. Jay uh, Van Bavel has has a new paper out where they're looking at political bias and replication or political bias. Yeah, political bias and replication uh, effects. And they they put together 194 studies that had been replicated by many labs projects and other other sources and found that I think something like 37 percent recovered the original effect at a significant, at the conventional 0.05 level, which I know is not the best way to assess this, but, um, and 2% found a significant effect, effect the opposite direction. And this is like a role of meta science directly informing us, I think, or helpfully informing us on our risks of backfire effects. If we take something from, and this is mind you from kind of of the low replicability period in social psychology. So this is not the period that we targeted, <laughs> you know, with our paper, we were kind of steering away from it. If anything, we were like looking, we're like prioritize last five years in social psychology, prioritize meta-analyses, prioritize other fields too. So we didn't try to over harvest from this period. But even if you take this kind of weaker period, I think with within our field, you know, you're still seeing 18 times the rate of recovered replications the same direction as backfire effects. Oh, but that's know? such a low bar. Like it's not... It's not a significant effect in the opposite direction is like, but all the ones that are zero, that's a, that's a, that's harm, that's potential harm, but not, not just useless. It's potentially harmful because you're using resources, there's opportunity costs. And like, what about all the potential side effects you didn't measure? So it has zero effect on your outcome of interest, but who knows if it has side effects or things, but even just the opportunity costs of thinking there's a positive effect there when there's not is, is quite harmful, I think. I think the opportunity costs are meaningful for some interventions, no question, you know, but I mean, the point you all were making in the paper is, you know, you may be doing harm when you think you're doing good. And if my look at the meta science is that the research is suggesting you're mostly not going to do that, that instead you're- But risk that's only looking at the outcome that the original study was looking at. So that's not looking at side effects or other potential outcomes. So there's still the possibility of harm on other indicators. I mean, I don't want to push this too hard. Like, Yeah, but that's true both ways. I but yeah. think the, right, it could be more beneficial than we know. It could be more harmful than we know. But I think a zero true effect when the original was positive, especially if the original was hyped and cited a lot and had a lot of impact either within or outside the field is a lot of damage even if the true effect is zero and not in the opposite direction. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not wild about the 37% number at all, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And this is part of why we didn't, you know, I think that one thing is, I feel like your critique here would apply better to, if we had written a paper where we had randomly pulled articles from a, you know, the five-year period and then just said, go do this. But we definitely didn't do that. You know, we did a selective review. We used people that were, you know, experts in the field. We, we sometimes picked rival researchers, you yeah, know, but that... But Liz Phelps, why, why wouldn't her research be so totally solid? Why wouldn't a paper in PNAS about voter turnout by experts in that field be totally solid? Like, um, your mm. your safeguards haven't worked for me in the past, so I don't trust them. And I don't. I also don't think the last five years of social psych are any are that much better. I mean, we're actually doing a big meta science project now to track it, and I'm partly responsible for that. I was an editor during that period, and I still don't think that I would rely very heavily. And this is just social and personality psych. I won't generalize beyond that. But the safeguards, I think they're in the right direction. It's good to get experts to vet things. It's good to rely on newer best practices and things like that. But to me, even those safeguards have continued to fail us. Even stuff coming out in the last few years in the top outlets vetted by the most blah, 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 still fail. And I think in five years, I'm going to be saying even registered reports have failed us. And like, I'm, yeah, just to 
to be the pessimistic Eeyore to your optimistic. <laughs> yeah, so, so Samin, I want to push a little bit on you, Samin, because let's forget about the nature of human behavior paper for a moment, okay? Um, I guess the question I have, and maybe I think, Rob, you're getting at this, is um, are you suggesting that no such paper could be written that would have good, reliable, trustworthy, you know, policy-worthy recommendations and, and from psychology? Forget about the other social sciences. Yeah, could there be no, in, in some world, could we find, you know, uh, whatever, a list of 10, 15, you know, effects that have been tested well uh, that are applied to the current situation? 10 or 15, yes, I think so. And I think I would I would like to see that paper that like really is really, really picky about which things to let in. And I know I know you guys did a lot of vetting. I did dig through the references a bit to see if it if it was to the same level as I would have liked. I mean, my standards are just. Yeah. So like, no, I don't think it is. So what I would have what I would like is a paper that just picks out those that are not just like, mm, I don't know. Not just registered reports for pre-registration, but like actually follows through on what they said they would do and sticks to the conclusion that one should have if one takes the evidence face value. And there's so many other things. I mean, I I don't know what it would take. I don't trust the experts within their own sub-area to detect these things because they're the same people that let a lot of crap through peer review. So who's who's the judge? I don't know. So it's this kind of like fantasy set but i do think there is a set of at least 10 or 15 papers out there that could speak to it my prediction is that 80 plus percent of them would be null results but they're still interesting and they still speak to potential uh, things we might have thought would work but actually don't work all right uh i you know i i it's kind of weird we're all kind of silenced by that because to some extent there is a bit of uh Security in 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 nihilism to some extent. <laughs> I also uh, have dabbled in nihilism myself. Uh, not not to not to numb, of course. Um, so okay, I want to ask. I've been dying to, to 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 ask this question, and this is one that uh, it wasn't actually crowdsourced from us, but I saw it and relates to this, and it 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 struck me. Um, and then let's see where, where that where that takes us. So this is from uh, it's a tweet from Alex Haslam, who is a co-author, I believe, on the the Nature Human Behavior paper. Um, and I'll just read it. Uh, in the three months since it was published, the paper in Nature Human Behavior, led by Jay Van Bavel and Rob Willer, has been accessed over one hundred thirty thousand times. More importantly, so far as I can see, most of what it says has been proved right. Proven right. And I was just taken by that because I just don't know how to evaluate that. I don't know how to evaluate how to, you know, okay, sure, 130,000 times, that's verifiable. Um, <laughs> but the, the information was proven correct. Like, how does he know? How would you, so I guess the question here would be, how do we know if the paper was, um, you know, validated? How do we know if it was right? Or how do we know uh, conversely that it was not right? And, and we just pick one or two findings. Obviously, there's so many things in there. Yeah, I'm like I'm reviewing our <clears throat> our social scientific insights box here to see which of these we have the systematic data on. I mean, the shared sense of identity can be helpful. I mean, I've tested a whole bunch of messaging interventions that um, would overlap with this, 
mostly with null effects because, well, I mean, there's a variety of reasons, I think, why we're finding null effects in our um, messaging studies. But I mean, actually be interesting, interested to share a story that will sound kind of Samin-ish of uh, my, my concerns about the sort of slowness of institutions in social psychology. This also doubles as like a peer review sour grapes story. So we've been conducting uh, lots of experiments on, you know, what might be more or less effective messages. We did two kinds of experiments. Like <clears throat> on the one hand, we, we put together like two dozen short messages to encourage compliance with public health guidelines based on the literature. And then we put together something like, uh, you know, like five or six based on research from, you know, this emerging nascent field of, you know, messaging around, around COVID. And then we crowdsourced another two dozen from Turkers where we, we got like 600 Turkers to make short messages they thought could be persuasive. And then we coded them for novelty and apparent persuasiveness. And then, you know, we, 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 you know, did this kind of clearinghouse where we had people, rate like 10 of these at once in terms of how persuasive they seemed in order to find like maybe the most promising ones. And then we implemented those in a between subjects design. And we, you know, where we measure compliance behaviors in the past and then predict, you know, people's say saying what they would do in the future with the message happening in between. And the big thing that we did that was different than I think with the way some people might approach this is we included an active control condition. So rather than just measuring effects relative to just no message or a neutral message, which we, we did as well, we also included an active control message, which looked like kind of the way the CDC talks about stuff. I mean, it was like direct quotes from the CDC. And so what we found is if we had just done the within subject study of just ratings of persuasiveness, we would have found like five messages that outperform you know, any you know, either control message. If we had just done the between subject studies with the null control, which is a conventional way to approach these things, I've done research like that myself in the past, we would have found four effective messages. But when we compared against the active control of the way the CDC talks about it, we found one message was okay, but it wasn't like that consistent. And it only was significant in like one out of three studies, although it was the best performing message in both the within subject studies. So, I think we came out of it kind of thinking, okay, we found one message is probably a little better than the way the CDC talked about it. And we found like 55 that probably are no better and then probably a, a handful that are worse. So we write this up and submit it to a journal and we get desk rejected. I mean, this is, again, I told you this is double as a sour grapes peer review story. Uh, and we get desk rejected because it doesn't contribute to theory, presumably because we didn't find any positive effects. But, you know, and so I appealed this and I, you know, I made the argument like, well, there are positive effects studies out there that I think this study is as rigorous as or, or more rigorous than. And that doesn't help intervention to only publish the positive effects and not publish the negative effects. Um, and this, this didn't go anywhere because it still didn't contribute to theory. So I, this is just a way to surface my own personal frustration. I found frustrating experience of trying to do really rigorous research, you know, and, you know, that could be applicable, you know, could inform applications and then trying to publish it and failing to find a space where you can do results independent publishing, even on this like pressing social problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's why I get so pessimistic or nihilistic is like, I feel like it's not a coincidence that the higher quality stuff has less impact and gets less attention and so on. There's very good reasons. If you have a confound, you're going to get a more exciting effect. If you don't bend over backwards to like actually measure the outcome of interest and you use some proxy that's going to have more method variance shared with the other measures, you're going to get a bigger, more impressive effect. So if we start doing things better and then 
reviewers and editors are, are comparing it to people who are doing the shoddier work, they're going to find our stuff underwhelming. So it's built into the system that the higher quality stuff is going to be at a huge disadvantage. And until unless we can figure out how to change the incentive structure, you can have registered reports, you can have other things, but like they're not going to have the impact. They're not going to get the attention. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's the right track, and I do think things are better now than they were five years ago, but I don't think they're good enough for me to feel like evidence or knowledge means all that much to me in psychology. Yeah, I, th- I think they are better. I mean, enough to where I was surprised, you know, that I couldn't even get to review it. Because I really thought in review that I would have, my like colleagues working in this space would have been like, no, no, we need to know the non-results actually, you know, um, that's important too. But so I do think it is better, but you know, there's no question that the norms still need to develop. The institutions are not as strong as they should be. It's a major point of agreement for sure. Rob, whose side are you on? <laughs> I, I, I maintain that social sciences can contribute to effective pandemic response. But I mean, you know, I'm going to have a lot of overlap with Samin. She's had a lot of influence over the way I think about, you know, this moment in, in social psychology that's, and the social very sciences. very flattering. Thanks. She's influenced all of us. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I have I have a question, and is now going going to our Twitter crowdsource. This is uh, one from our one of our former guests from Claudia Haas, um, and this is a question I always love. It's a, a question you can ask uh, with any any kind of debate or um, really anybody. Uh, the question is a uh, question for both of you. Um, what would change your mind? The first thing that comes to my mind would be evidence of failed interventions with backfire effects. You know that were really significant. That would be the biggest thing. Like if there was an example of an intervention that had as negative of effects as Banerjee's study had positive effects, I would be like, I'm fundamentally reassessing my entire uh, position. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. Well, it's not impossible to imagine something like that could happen, but I don't expect it to happen. I certainly hope it doesn't. So only a reversal? What if, what, and not a null? No, no, I didn't say only. Yeah, no. And I expect you'll find nulls with interventions. I mean, common sense informed interventions and social science informed interventions should produce nulls a lot of the time, maybe even most of the time. I don't know. Um, but uh, that was just the first thing that came to mind is like that would that would cause me to definitely change my mind. Yeah, I think if I'm honest, if you ask me what would change my mind about whether I trust psychology research done up until now, it would maybe there is nothing and I should be honest about that. I'm not proud of that. Like, I feel like that's not a good position as a scientist, but... No, but maybe more specific to the resolution. Yeah. So, so in terms of psychology so, helping COVID. Yeah, but I think let's imagine a future world. So let's say in 10 or 20 years, there's another crisis that social science can help with. What would it take between now and then for me to think that psychology could contribute something? So let's forget about trying to change the past, but like in an imaginary future, what what... And what what circumstances would I think that psychology has something to contribute, useful to contribute to a crisis like this? Um, and yeah, my answer is very system stuff, not like an individual data point or something like that. But seeing that the field has a sustained commitment to getting it right and cares more about getting it right than about people's reputations or getting public attention or be, getting a seat at the policy table or all the, like, I feel like we're reaching for the prize, but we're not willing to do the work to get to the prize. And so what that work looks like conveniently, I have a preprint up um, with Alex Holcomb where we talk about like, what are the indicators, the visible indicators um, of a commitment to self-correction. So what does a field look like who actually is walking the walk and not just saying science is self-correcting now give us a seat at the table. 
Um, so those include a commitment to transparency, and we've heard a lot about that. So, Mickey, you called me like an open science activist. I don't mind the activist part. I think it's the open science part I reject because I think I'm an activist on behalf of not so much transparency. Transparency is easy and cheap. The thing I care about is criticism, correction, um, that kind of thing, which comes after transparency is necessary for that. We're making taking those steps. That's good. We're on the right track. But the next step is then when someone uses that transparency to show that actually your effect goes away if under all alternative specifications or most alternative specifications, or I can't replicate it, I've made a good faith attempt with strong methods multiple times and I can't replicate it or things like that, that then the field actually, I don't care about the original authors, but the field actually corrects. Um, and that gets as much prestige and attention. It gets the uh, the replicators awards and grants and jobs and things like that. If I see stuff like that, I will think this is a field that's committed to getting it right. So if you tell me this field has produced evidence that su strongly suggests X, then I will believe that when the experts in that field say that. In the end, it's going to come down to trusting authority and expertise because I won't be able to evaluate every claim, but I'm more likely to trust that authority and expertise if I can see that the field is genuinely committed to correcting itself. I have one little mini story I just want to throw in that I think made me feel a little better about things. And I don't, I mean, I'd be interested in whether it makes you feel a little better about things, at least for the potential for large scale cultural change and social psychology. So early on with our research during the pandemic around messaging, you know, we became aware that there were lots of other research teams that were doing research on, on messaging. And a caveat here that I've since become convinced that source dominates content around messaging, you know, and I really feel like I mean, we haven't exactly seen that study, but I, I really think the evidence points to that. But at the time, <laughs> I was still, you know, trying to figure out how to how to optimize on messaging, uh, message content. And so we we were like, wait, why on earth would we not just try to get in contact with all of these researchers so we can all just maximize the quality of our work? Because uh, who the hell, you know, like we're not competing with them. I and mean, maybe in some really superficial sense, we're competing for zero sum journal space, but who the hell cares, you know? And so we reached out to them, you know, to like, 12 research teams you know that we knew about and then they referred us to like two or three more people and we organized like this rapid international conference mini conference with flash talks with like five days notice and didn't just have like 100 percent attendance like 120 percent attendance because they brought in all these other teams and it wasn't just psychologists it was like political scientists and others and everybody just shared their data really fast and they were just like doctors they were just like so we did this we had this problem we fixed it we still have this problem we have no idea how to fix it please tell us you know just sharing out what they had found and then stop next person total transparency as far as i could tell nobody you know seemed like they were posturing or holding back and we came out of that you know obviously with a lot of insights that helped us do our research better because some people answered questions you know that problems we had run into and hopefully we helped others but also i just felt better about our field because I was like, oh yeah, everybody can just put the work first, you know, and uh, and maybe it took, you know, working on like a big problem that's so obviously important, even if I, I now think message content isn't, isn't like the solution at all or is a very small part of the solution. Yeah, that's very inspiring. I, I think there are a lot of individual instances or even patterns that are really, that make me slightly more optimistic it's just hard because there's so many more negative stories. Like, you know, when I tweet about a replication failure and how, you know, the original authors are being so diplomatic and so on, and they still get whatever, then I get private messages from people telling me they also failed to replicate that thing, but their advisor told them not to publish it or whatever. And so for every like good news story, there's still so many people uh, either actively or passively kind of 
stopping this progress from happening. But yeah, I mean, it is things are changing for the better for sure. It's a big effect size and that kind of story. I think yeah, I think that may not have happened a few years ago. So that's that's good. Um, so I'm uh, conscious of time. Uh, uh, we've taken a lot of it already, and in the, the last couple of minutes that we have, I wonder. Uh, and we could do, you know, leave it up to you. Do um, we could uh, kind of leave it for, you know, quote unquote closing remarks, or uh, just, you know, thank, thank you, and say goodbye. Whatever you guys want to kind of leave with any parting words, or I guess, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I could kind of restate where I land at after this. I bet Samin will do a, a more elegant job of putting this together, as she has at a couple points already in the podcast of, of locating where everybody's coming down on these different dimensions, um, but. You know, I, you know, I do still think that, you know, that the social sciences can make a, a positive contribution. And like, you know, as Samin noted, like even just at the measurement level or like warning you about potential backfire effects on interventions. But I, but I think also uh, on actual interventions. And I think we already do this in other social sciences, you know, like you wouldn't want, you know, the Fed to not have a macroeconomist, you know, directing it. You're like you, you would want people trained in the behavioral aspects of public health to be in high positions in the CDC. You want people who know about fake news research to work at Twitter and Facebook, you know, and, and help them do what they do. And, you know, like, I think the social sciences can, can intervene productively in social problems. It's obviously, you know, I agree with this, with this comment on our paper that you, you want to get problem and site-specific uh, testing of, of our ideas wherever possible. I think COVID is one of the rare cases with this exponential growth, massive crisis, huge stakes where it made sense to, in some cases with high confidence interventions with low downside, to skip that step. But I would rarely suggest skipping that step. And I don't in my consulting work, for example. Um, but, you know, I think we can, I think we can contribute. And I think that I also think social psychology within the social sciences has most of the problems Samin said. I don't quite agree on the severity of, of her diagnosis, but I'm I'm much closer to her than I probably am to the to the average social psychologist. And I think that um, I think things are getting better. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a poptimist about this and and say that I think I think things are on the right track, but you know, every few days I also see something that troubles me, you know, that that makes me concerned that we're not moving as quickly as we need to be. Um, yeah, I think my position boils down to things are getting better, but I just still don't trust our science, um, psychology specifically. Um, and then I do think, I mean, one thing, another point of agreement is that this is absolutely a, a social science crisis and one that social science should have something to contribute to. And we, yeah, like we we ought to have a, we ought to be in a position to have a seat at the table, but I think it's our own fault that we don't. And I think we should learn from that and think, okay, well, what do we need to do to earn that, that spot? Um, and I think we know the answers. I think we know what high quality research looks like. And I, I'm sometimes baffled at why we don't implement it more. I mean, but again, I look at my own research and I know the answers. A lot of it is laziness. A lot of it is career pressures, rewards, et cetera, wanting your grad students to be able to have publications and things like that. I mean, so these are all very real constraints. So we we need to address those if we're going to try to try to fix things. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I'm optimistic that we've made a lot of the changes we can make within the current incentive structure. That's great, but I think we're going to hit a wall. And if we can't change who ends up getting a job and awards and grants and things like that, 
all those people putting in that work. The, if you think about it, if you're saying five years, okay, those are the people that are now on the job market and going to be weeded out. <laughs> and so we need to find a way to change the incentive structure to keep those people in if they want to be in academia, make them the ones who get to choose which papers get into prestigious journals, which grant proposals get funded, and so on. I don't, I don't know the path from here to there. I think we've made a lot of the progress we can make in the current system, but we, something needs to change on a deeper level to take the next step. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree that we need to work on the incentive structure, especially in social science, but social science more generally, that it doesn't reward quality of work as much as it needs to. Um, well, all right. Uh, UL, did you want to uh, add anything? or No, just to say, guys, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I found this personally fascinating. I know the listeners are going to love it. So thanks for giving us your time. Thanks for having us. And thanks, Rob. This was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. It's an honor for me.